Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, if you would, please navigate in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in that passage that was just read. Uh, let's pause for a, a word of prayer. Father, as we just sang about your marvelous, matchless grace, Father, so too I pray now that as your word is preached, that, um, Lord, the, the true condition of our hearts would be revealed and that your grace would be seen to be the only answer. Lord, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had a decision to make as I prepared for this message this week. And the, the decision was, in this passage that was just read, do we sort of skim across the surface, only talking about the kind of the major, main, big idea? Or, or do we go deep and explore all the theological implications of this text? And I, I want to warn you here, right at the beginning, that I've, I made the decision to take you deep. Okay, so uh, I'm basically asking you to strap on your scuba gear and uh, come with me to the depths, okay? And um, I, I, the reason that I, I made this decision is, one, because I, I think to really get the, the full richness of this passage, you, you have to go deep with it. And I, I really believe you can handle it. Okay, but, but with that said, if, if you find that you don't understand everything that we talk about this morning, that's okay, right? You can always go online and, and re-listen. You can come and talk to me. You can come and talk to one of the seasoned saints here who maybe has heard this multiple times and might be able to help you understand it as well. But um, just so that you know, I'm taking you deep, and my hope is that it will open up to you new depths of, of awe and beauty of, of God's word and his plan of salvation this morning. Well, have you ever been found guilty by association? This kind of thing used to happen to me, it seems like quite a bit in school. Might say something about the company I kept, I don't know. But um, the teacher, you know, for example, the teacher would sometimes step out of the room, right, and uh, leave the room for a little while, and then, and then upon coming back, would find the class in some disorder, you know, in a bit of an uproar. And I would find that sometimes when that would happen, the teacher would, would uh, lay some extra work upon us as sort of a punishment, you know, for being out of control while, while she was out of the room. Didn't matter if, if I was a part of the uproar or not. As a part of my association with that class, as a part of the class, the punishment came down upon us all. I was found guilty by association. Another example, I, I've, I believe I've shared this story before, but um, if you have heard it before, don't stop me. Just smile and nod and listen again. Um, there was a time when I was in the eighth grade when a teacher called me out after a break that we'd had outdoors. We'd have a break every morning, eat a muffin or something, come back inside, and, and there I was sitting in science class, and my teacher called me out in front of the whole class of like 30, 40 people, said, Stan, I heard you use that crude word. She, she said, the, said the word. She's the one that said it for the whole class, not me. And uh, 
I was so taken aback by that because not only had I not used that word, I didn't even know what that word meant. It was sort of an obscure word. I had to go home and ask my parents what it meant. And I, I know I didn't use that word, and yet I was considered guilty by association because obviously someone around me had said it, and she thought that I was the one who had said it, right? Guilty by association. I think so many times when we think about our guilt over, over sin, we rightly think first about the sins that we commit. Right, that we ourselves have done, our mind drifts to maybe the sins of our youth or the sins of this past week or even the sins of just a few moments ago. Right? We're, th- we're thinking about the things, the sins that we have committed, and naturally so. But did you know that the Bible also speaks of our guilt over sin? Not just over the sins that we ourselves commit, but it speaks of our sin and our guilt by association with Adam, the first man. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5. We are guilty before God because of our, associate, our association with Adam. And in fact, I would say that this text teaches something kind of surprising. Uh, when, when you first read it and when you first skim over it, you may not even catch it. And that is because of your, your guilt by association with Adam, You are not just a a victim of the fall. You're not just collateral damage. Adam sinned and and that kind of impacted you indirectly. No, what what this passage seems to be teaching is that your association with Adam is deeper than you think. Adam's sin is your sin. Adam's death is your death. You see, as a, a son or a daughter of Adam and Eve, the scriptures teach that you are united to him in such a way that God imputes Adam's sin directly to you. So what this means is that before you ever even sin once on your own, you are already condemned in Adam. And in fact, The reason that you sin at all is because of your unity with Adam. You don't sin and then become a sinner. You sin because you already are a sinner in Adam, right? You are are conceived in sin. You are born in sin. Nobody had to teach you how to do it. It just flows out of who you are in Adam. But this doesn't come natural to us, does it? This teaching doesn't come naturally to us. We, we tend to want to understate the depth of our association with Adam's sin. We say it's not fair for God to attribute or impute Adam's sin to us. It, it, we may not actually verbalize this, but at least functionally we behave in this way. We still put way too much confidence in our flesh. But if we truly understood this doctrine of original sin, we would, we would not put so much confidence in the flesh of Adam and Eve right? that we have inherited. We still tend to view ourselves and others as if we were nearly wounded by the fall. But that's not what the text that was just read this morning in Genesis chapter 3 says. It says that in Adam we died. Right? Not just wounded, but we died 
We tend to minimize our desperate need for our Savior, our desperate need to be made, made a new creation. We don't realize just how much we need a second Adam to come and succeed where the first Adam failed. You know, we sang this morning, I love the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. The second verse of that says this, Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. Right? Jesus is the true and better Adam. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. And we're, we're, we're going to get to that here in the passage. That is the gospel message. That in Adam we sinned and, and we died and we were in hopelessness. And so that, that situation was so hopeless and there was, there was such a death that happened there that we needed a new Adam to come and become the first of a new creation. That's how desperate our plight was. And so Jesus really is the true and better Adam. He is the one who succeeded in, at every point where Adam, the first Adam, failed. And that's the gospel message. It's the, the, the plan of salvation history in, in two figureheads. And that's where we're headed here in our, in our discussion. But before we can move on to the true and better Adam, before we can focus on the good news of that, we really need to stop and and consider our unity with the first Adam. We need to make sure we understand the depth of that association this morning. And so that's what we're going to spend our entire time this morning. We're going to talk about our unity with the first Adam this morning, and then you have to come back next week and we're going to talk about our, our, the depth of our unity with Christ and the implications for that. So by necessity this morning, this, what we're talking about this morning is really going to be a, a lot of knowledge. It's going to be a lot of, of explaining about our association with Adam. But come back next week and as we talk about the second Adam, it's going to be more doxology, right? It's going to be more praise as we consider Christ as the second Adam in whom we find life and righteousness, So first, our unity with Adam, verses 12 through 14. What we find here, uh, really in the first half of verse 12, is that the consequences of Adam's original sin have devastated us all. The consequences of Adam's original sin have devastated us all. And, And we see here in verse 12 that Paul starts this section with another, therefore, And whenever you see a therefore, you need to to realize that it's connecting you back to what was just stated, right? This this passage, we don't want to just treat it in isolation. We need to realize that it flows out of a context. And just to remind you a little bit of what Paul has been saying, look back at at verse 1 in just a moment where Paul says another therefore. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So Paul is transitioning from establishing the fact that we cannot be justified before God on our own merits, but we must be declared righteous before him by faith alone. And having established that fact in chapters 1 through 4, here beginning in chapter 5, Paul begins to to, uh, exult in the benefits of our salvation, the benefits of our justification. 
And those benefits are many, and they're wonderful. We have peace with God. We have access into grace. We are exulting in the hope both of future glory in him and also hope in our sufferings and our afflictions day to day because God is accomplishing something in and through them. We have experienced the love of God, a love unlike any other love you have ever experienced before. And of course, he ends here in verse 11 that we exult in God himself. Therefore, he says in verse 12, therefore. And he's going to go on here in this whole section to sort of explode this idea here that if Christ died for us while we were yet his enemies, much more, how much more shall we be saved through his life? Right? So he's, he's going to connect. I think the connection here is through these much more statements. You're going to see he talks about much more in verses 10 and 11, how if, we, if Christ died for us as enemies, much more he will save us through his life. And then here in this section, he's going to talk about if this is the way it was in Adam, much more what is it going to be like now that we're united with Christ in his life. So therefore, that's what Paul says, therefore, he's, he's, this whole discussion is connected to what has come before, but I want to get ahead of myself too much here. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Right? Who is this one man? This one man is Adam, the first man. And he says here that through this one man, Adam, sin and then death entered into the world. Wasn't that long ago that we as a church studied the first 11 chapters of Genesis? I hope you still remember that. I know I still do. And I, as we studied that, as we studied Genesis chapter 3 that was read this morning, I was just absolutely wrecked by the question, how many trespasses did it take to unleash the promised consequences of death? How many trespasses did it take for us to lose paradise? Just one. Right? Just one little, what appeared to be little insignificant Trespass, the eating of some forbidden fruit. And we get all this, right? We get death. We get expelled from the garden. We get enmity with God. But you see, what seems to be a, a small, minor infraction to us is in reality nothing short of outright rebellion. In a world of permission where God gave all the permission in the world, he gave only one commandment. He said, don't eat from this tree. What, what was the one thing that Adam did? He broke the one prohibition that was given, and in so doing, he started a rebellion. It was as if he spit in the face of Almighty God. And while the serpent lied about the result of that one sin, he said, you shall not surely die. God did not lie. For at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually. And the result of dying spiritually is eventual physical death as well. Adam and Eve began to die in that moment physically. Now notice that even though it was Eve who was first deceived and first ate the fruit, 
it was Adam who was standing nearby and Adam who was responsible for his dear wife to, to lead and protect her. He was the one who had been given the commandment. And so it is through Adam that we now say sin and death came, not through Eve. It was through Adam. Adam is held responsible. And Paul goes on here and he says, not only did sin and death enter through this one man, but he says, and so death spread to all men. We all experience this consequence of death, don't we? Of the 7.8 or so billion people alive today, 7.8 billion or so of them will die. Right? It's a fact of life. The clock is ticking. Some of us will live long lives, full lives, and some don't even make it out of the womb. Right? And the rest of us, we cut down somewhere in between. No one will ever cheat death, even though we're trying to do it, aren't we? Trying to extend it. Trying to colonize Mars, right? People freeze themselves after death and hope that one day science will catch up to them and they can be revived, right? I know uh, Elon Musk is working on a, a chip to be implanted in your brain and they're saying one day you'll be, be able to download your consciousness onto a computer. I don't know about that, right? But that's some of the hopes that people have, right? To cheat death. But none of us will escape death. See, Romans 12, 5 teaches that Adam's sin devastated us all universally. But now we must ask a, a, an important question, and that is Why? Why is this so? Why is it that Adam's consequence has spread so universally to us? How is it fair that because of Adam's sin, I die? And the answer that Paul gives us here in this section is that it's because of our unity with Adam. It's our solidarity with him. And he, Paul answers it in this way. He says, it's because all sinned. All sinned. Right now, there are two ways to take this. Two ways to take this. First, you can take this to mean, Paul could be saying, because all have sinned individually and personally. Right? This is what I'm talking about earlier about when, I, when we think about our sins, we usually think about, oh yeah, when I was 13, I did that. And then when I was 21, I did that. And you know, we kind of think about the, the actual sins that we have committed. And, and it could be that that's what Paul's saying here, that, that sin and death entered in and that all died because all have actually and individually personally sinned. Perhaps we are all born innocent like Adam was in that garden Adam was innocent right until he committed that first sin maybe we all come into the world like Adam and Eve right innocent and then because we live in a world that that so has so many sinners in it we kind of eventually we we sin too and we fall like Adam and Eve do we reenact the fall a billion times over 
billions of times over every time someone's born. I think in some ways this explanation, it, it makes the most immediate sense to us that each person is only held accountable for his or her own individual sins alone. That's what seems to make the most sense to us. It seems to make more sense that Adam's sin only impacts me indirectly, not directly. That I'm not held accountable for something someone else did. Right? That, that, that kind of rankles us to think that, man, how can it be that I am held accountable for what someone else did? But let me tell you, this interpretation is wrong. This view is called Pelagianism. It's named after a 4th or 5th century theologian by the name of Pelagius. And he was resoundingly denounced by the early church as a heretic. Pelagianism fails on multiple levels. I'm going to give you four reasons just briefly here this morning. First, it doesn't match up with our experience, does it? It doesn't match up with our experience where we live in a world where innocents die before even being old enough to know right from wrong. How, how, is, that, how is that explainable that an, a little infant dies? That Adam's consequence of death is applied to an, an innocent little baby. It doesn't match up with our experience. Secondly, This possible interpretation doesn't match Paul's own argument here in the next few verses here in Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 13 and 14 in your Bibles. Paul says, Because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That's <laughs> one of those verses, you, a couple of verses you've got to read a couple times before the meaning of it sinks in, right? It's, it's a little bit hard to absorb. So l- let me explain it to you here. While Adam died for his transgressions, and that makes sense to us, we also see that, that those who lived between Adam and Moses... Right? They also died. And, and, and yet, their sin and their death was, was different from Adam's because Adam's sin and death was as a result of him transgressing that one law that God gave him in the garden. They, Adam transgressed the law, he sinned, and he died. And yet, everyone from Adam to Moses sort of lived without a law. And yet, they still died. That's what Paul's saying here. He's making the same argument that I just made pointing to little infants who die. Right? Why would a little infant die who's never done something right or wrong unless he was under the consequence of Adam's sin? You can, you can make the same argument here. Why would, why would someone die in between Adam and Moses? There was no, there was no tree that they were not to eat from anymore. They had been expelled from the garden. There was no law of Moses. There was no Ten Commandments yet. And yet they died. They were under the consequence of Adam's sin. Paul's making the same exact point here. 
How does it make sense for those who are not even under a law to die? Well, it's because they have been united with Adam in, in his transgression. Thirdly here, it destroys the, anal- the whole analogy that Paul's trying to make in this passage. It destroys the analogy between the first Adam and the second Adam, who is Christ. Right? If you want to take here that this phrase, because all sinned, is referring to individual sins that we all commit that lead us to then die, then it turns this analogy between Adam and Christ into something like this. See if you can hang with me through this. The analogy becomes this. Through Adam, sin and death spread to all because all individually sin and die, right? That's the interpretation. You would then have to look at the second half of the analogy like this. Through Jesus, life and righteousness spread to all because all do acts of righteousness, right? That would be, it, that would be the way you would kind of carry forward that analogy. But that's not the gospel, right? That is not the gospel. It's not, hey, Adam sinned and died, and therefore we do acts of sin and, and, and therefore died. And then the second Adam came, and he did acts of righteousness, and therefore we did acts of righteousness. That's not the gospel, right? The, the picture here, rather, is, is that through one man, the fountainhead of the, the whole human race, through that fountainhead came sin and death into the world. It was imputed to us. But now the good news is that through another man, through one man, the fountainhead of the new creation, Jesus Christ, came righteousness and life to all who believe. That's the gospel. Right? And it kind of hinges on how you interpret this one little phrase, because all sinned. Fourthly, and I can't really get into this too deep this morning, without probably drowning you. But it's, it, it doesn't fit the grammar. Right? If you could look behind the English into the original grammar of the text, um, I could point to two or three different things here, but one thing in particular is the tense of the verb, sinned, is, a, is in the aorist tense, indicating a completed past action. So it's speaking of something that happened in the, fa- in the past. Because all sinned, right? In the past, in Adam. That's what we believe this means. It doesn't say that all, all do sin or all will sin or all are sinning. It says all sinned. And then he goes on to make the comparison between Adam and Christ that I think is the most decisive thing. So that's one possible way to take that phrase. But the, the other possible way to take this phrase is, like I've been hinting to all along here, is that This means because all sinned in Adam. All sinned in Adam. And and this is, is this. When Adam sinned, he was acting for us in a representative way. We're used to being represented, aren't we? I mean, we live even in a democracy where we go to the polls and we elect someone to represent us. Well, what what this view, this way of taking this verse is, Uh, believes is that when Adam sinned, he was acting for us in a representative way so that the guilt he deserved was imputed to us all. 
What he did is counted as if we ourselves had done it. The strongest arguments for this, I mean, I could just give you those exact same four points I just gave you for why the other one was wrong, now for why this one is right. right? This matches our experience where innocents die. Right? This gives an explanation for why people between Adam and Moses died. Right? This maintains the analogy between Adam and Christ. And it actually matches the, the grammar of the original language. So for all these reasons, I, I really believe that the second interpretation is correct. That Paul is teaching here that we are represented by Adam. Now, I told you, you've got to have your scuba gear with me this morning. Because if, that, if, you thought, if, if you thought, Pastor, that's deep enough, I need, I need some air, right? Buckle up. We're about to go just a little bit deeper, okay? We're going to go a little bit deeper here. So once we establish here that, that we believe that Adam represents us, then we need to ask ourselves the question, how exactly does that work? That Adam can represent me and I'm held accountable for his sin. Right? How is it just for God to hold me accountable for Adam's sin? Well, there's, there's two basic ways that theologians seek to explain this. And the first one is often referred to as realistic headship. That Adam was realistically the head of our race. Um, some other names that you may have heard this called, uh, if you have read about this before, would be seminal headship or natural headship. Sometimes it's even called the Augustinian theory of original sin uh, because Augustine held to this as well. Um, and this view says this, that death spread to all men because we were Adam. Right? That we were in him, um, sort of organically. So what this means is that not only would you and I do the same thing, so like if I were in the garden, man, Adam's made of the same stuff as me, so I would probably make the same mistake he made. doesn't mean just that. What, what they're actually suggesting here is that we were somehow really present there in Adam. Right? In his loins, if you will. Right? We were a genetic possibility, to, to put it in maybe modern language. Maybe not even just a genetic possibility, but a, a genetic eventuality. Right? We existed in Adam. That's what they believe. It's an attempt to explain our unity with him organically. Now you might be saying, what? <laughs> that sounds kind of crazy. And... I mean, I think my reaction to hearing this, this theory of how I can be held accountable for Adam's sin, uh, my reaction is to say, so what if I was in the loins of Adam? I wasn't there consciously choosing to sin. So this doesn't really solve anything, right? That, that's sort of my objection. And if you raise that objection too as you hear this, I think you would be correct, but before we just dismiss this view as a bunch of ancient nonsense, I want to encourage you to enter into it a little because this view actually has a little bit of biblical support. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says this. Let me actually flip there in my Bible. Hebrews chapter 7, 
verses 9 and 10 say this, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, <laughs> I realize that's dropping right into the middle of a context here that um, you know, may not make sense to you, but let me attempt to explain this to you really briefly. In this passage here in Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews makes a very similar point to this realistic headship theory. He says that when Abraham paid a tithe to the priest king of Salem, whose name is, was Melchizedek, in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham paid that tithe to Melchizedek, it was as if Abraham's descendant Levi, who was still in his loins, if you will, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is going to argue that since the lesser gives to the greater, that Levi, the, the, the father of all priests in Israel, pr- paid a tithe to a, another priest through Abraham. I told you this was going to get deeper, okay? So if the lesser pays to the greater, then, then the Hebrew author here is reasoning that there must be a priesthood greater than the Levitical priesthood since Levi paid tithes to, to Melchizedek in Abraham. Bottom line, the, the, the author of Hebrews here establishes representative solidarity between Abraham and Levi in such a way that when Abraham, what Abraham did is imputed to his descendant, Levi. If that didn't make sense, go back. I encourage you to go back and read that this week and, and think about how this might parallel between your connection between Adam and yourself. Okay? So... There is something to be learned from this realistic headship view, I think. But I think the truth to be found in this is this. We are, in fact, reproductions of Adam and Eve. We We are organically connected to him. God didn't create all of us in a moment as individual little creations, like he did the angels, for example, right? We, we don't know a lot about, about the creation of angels, but it seems to be that the angels were created in a moment, individually, right? And they all, they, they don't, the scriptures say that angels don't marry, they don't reproduce, right? They were just created, they just were. And guess what? When, when Lucifer fell into sin and, and many of the angels fell with him, some did not, right? Many did not fall, and, and yet there's no representative there because they all just exist, right? They don't have an organic head. God just created them all at once. Mankind, on the other hand, was created to reproduce. So in a very real sense, we are, all of us, little reproductions of Adam and Eve. We all sprung from him. He is the natural head of the human race. And if the organic fountainhead of the human race sinned, then how can we, his reproductions, not be represented by him in that? More than that, how can a sinful and dying human reproduce himself as anything other than another sinful, dying human being? The stream was poisoned at the fountainhead. That's what this view sort of teaches. So I think there is some truth in that. But 
I will say that as, as interesting as all that is and as, you know, how there is some truth in that to be gleaned, I really don't think that is what Paul is getting at here in Romans chapter 5. An alternative view to the realistic headship view is what we call the federal headship view. This is the view that Adam represented us primarily and simply because God appointed him to be the representative of the whole human race. James Boyce explains it uh, that this view is referred to as the federal view because of the analogy to the way an ambassador might act on behalf of his country. When he signs a document or takes an action, he does so for each of the country's citizens, and they are therefore bound by what he does. It's a federal representation, if you will. I believe that this is the the simple, most clear, most common sense explanation of how God can consider us to be responsible for Adam's sin. It's because he appointed Adam as the head of a race. It makes the most sense of this comparison between the first Adam and the last Adam, who is Christ. In Adam, our federal representative, we all sinned and died. Therefore, when we are born into this world, we are born already under sin and death through Adam. And then one day when we when we get old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, we all ratify Adam's decision anyway, right? We all sin with our own actual sins, but before we could ever do that, we are already in a condemned position because of Adam's original sin. And no one, as I said earlier, has to teach us how to sin. No one has to teach a child to steal that cookie from the cookie jar or to talk back against his parents. We sin because we are sinners born in Adam our representative head. And that's exactly how Paul teaches this concept to the Romans here. He says at the end of verse 14, he calls Adam, he says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam is a type of the one to come. What is a type? What is a type? Well, the, the word here has a range of meanings from uh, an impression or a stamp or a form or an outline or a pattern. And I think that really is the meaning of this word here. When we say that something is a type, it is in the pattern of something else that is yet to come, right? And you have to ask yourself then when you read verse 14, In what ways is Adam a type or pattern of Christ? And in what ways is he not a pattern of Christ? I like the way Greg Gilbert said it. Lost in my own presentation here. Here it is. Both Adam and and Jesus were great kings and representatives of humanity so that what each of them did counted for more than just themselves. I think that really sums it up really well. When you think of what does it mean that Adam is a type of the one who was to come, 
we see here that both Adam and Jesus were great kings, great representatives of humanity, so that what each of them did counted for more than just themselves. That's what the scriptures teach. Paul's going to go on to explain the ways that Adam is a pattern of the one to come. And he's also going to explain the ways in which the analogy breaks down. We're going to get into that next week in the next paragraph here. But for now, I, I just want to say that that it is this typology of Adam and Christ that must control how you interpret the meaning of this text. And I think one thing is clear. What Adam did counted for more than just himself. It impacted us greatly. It's attributed directly to us. And on the other hand, what Christ did counted for more than just himself and is attributed and imputed directly to us by faith. So let me close with just a few points of application here. First, I think the reason why I bothered to go into all this depth with you on this was so that you would know, that you would understand the depth of your unity with Adam. That you're not just impacted by the fall, but you are united with him in it. That you are, your, your very fountainhead, your very root has been spoiled in him. And I, I really think that you go to a new level of understanding in, your, in understanding your own spiritual predicament when you come to understand that we are not just a mixture of good and evil, right? We're not just a mixture of good things that we do and bad things that we do, but we are in sin and dead before we were even born. We're not just the latest model of humanity we are, are the latest model of humanity that has been dead since the fall. Right? We are just like Adam. We, are, are, we were represented by him. And our, our plight is that serious. Secondly, so I, I hope you understand that point, but secondly, I, I want this to, to cause you to despair in placing any hope in your own flesh. Right? If you have, still have some hope in your own abilities, in your own human flesh to try harder, to do better, to survive, to rise above, right? you, you don't just need to do better, my friend. You need to be born again as a new creation. Right? That's the point of all this. The point of all this is to see that you were represented by someone who let you down. Right? And you are corrupted to the core. You need to be born again after the pattern of the second Adam who is Christ. Christ died for your sins so that through faith you might be united with him and have your sins paid for through being united with him in his death. But not only that, not only are we united with him in his death, but even more than that, we are united with Christ in his life as he rose again from the dead. And that unity in him will mean for you righteousness and life forevermore. Repent of your sins and trust in him today. There's no hope to be found from within, either in your initial salvation or even in your sanctification. Our hope comes through being united with the indwelling Christ. 
you must look up to him and be saved. And thirdly and, and finally here this morning, I, I really long for this to be something that you embrace. That you embrace this idea of representation for what it is. As a grace from God. Right? This is actually really good news for you when you understand it. Right? You might think, man, it's, it's really a raw deal that Adam represented me and, and, and his sin is attributed, is imputed to me in that way. That feels like a raw deal. I think I could have done better. Right? But please know that not only would you have done the exact same thing, I mean, Adam had every advantage and still fell. But take hope because this representative principle also leaves the door open for us to have a better representative. Like I said earlier, it it seems from the scriptures that the angels do not have the same option available to them. Right? Because we are guilty by association, we are guilty because of our representative, God in his grace sent a better representative. And there's a possibility for his grace to come to us and for us to be saved. Greg Gilbert gave uh, an illustration that really resonated with me. He said, imagine that you're at a basketball game and during the halftime entertainment, you are brought down onto the court. You're brought down onto the court to to take part in a three-point one-shot challenge from the top of the key. Have you ever seen this kind of thing that goes on? You can see YouTube videos of people making those shots, right? (laughs) Winning a bunch of money or something. One shot, pretend in this illustration, you get one shot, and if you make it, you win $10 billion. But you miss it. And you have to spend the rest of your life in a supermax prison. How are you feeling about taking that shot? Then suddenly, out of the tunnel, walks Steph Curry. You guys know who Steph Curry is? If you don't know basketball, Steph Curry is this fiery little guy that uh, is an amazing three-point shooter. I'll just put it, put it like that. Steph Curry comes out of the tunnel. I mean, this guy almost single-handedly changed the game of basketball to reorient it back to the three-point shot. He's so good at it. And suddenly it dawns on you, what a gracious thing for the organizers of this game to, to provide for me a representative to take the shot for me, right? I mean, how good would you feel about passing the ball off to Steph Curry and say, Steph, you take the shot. Some of what we learned this morning about original sin is, is tough to swallow at first. But if you look at it from the other side, the fact that we fell into sin through a representative also means that we can be saved through a representative. And so embrace this biblical teaching for what it is. It is an incredible grace from God. 
With that, we'll stick a bookmark in our study and pick up, beginning with verse 15 next week. But just to encourage you, as I said earlier, this week we waded through a lot of theology, we through a lot of explanation. Next week, we put the hard thinking work in, and we get to move on to doxology, to praise, as we think about the second Adam and what he came to do for us. So I hope you'll be able to join us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, thankful for what you have done for us. Lord, thank you for looking upon us in our our, uh, disastrous predicament that we are in, in Adam, and Lord, in love, sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be for us a new creation, Lord, that in him we might uh, might not only find forgiveness of our sins, but Lord, also find in him new life, life forevermore. Father, we confess that some of what we've studied this morning is hard to understand. Some of it's hard to accept. Father, I pray that you would give soft hearts, Lord, that you would give understanding where that's lacking. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts to see, Lord, what a gift this principle of representation is. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, by faith to move all of our trust, transfer all of our trust, Lord, off of ourselves, off of our flesh. And Lord, may we trust all the more in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Lord, may we live moment by moment, Lord, in dependence upon the indwelling Christ in our lives. Father, I pray that you would Bless each one who's come today, Lord. May they be encouraged by the gospel. And Lord, those who have never come to you, Lord, those who have never been born again, Lord, may today be that day. Lord, help us to make decisions now in light of hearing your word preached that we will be glad that we made for all eternity. I pray these things now in Jesus' name.